Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 440. A special Purim edition. So as we approach Purim, of course, Mishanichnas Adem Marm Besimcha, as we enter Adar, the month of Adar, we increase in joy. And as we get closer to Purim, the joy only intensifies and accelerates. So it should be a Frelicha month, a continued month, a Frelicha Purim. And a simcha that permeates and infuses every aspect of our lives with higher strength. Simcha paid together, breaking through boundaries, breaking through obstacles, impediments, the different things that sometimes limit or impede our ability to grow and be the best we can be in serving our purpose, our divine purpose. This program is in merit of Baruch Binyamin ben Menucha Lana and Miriam Baschayasar Altes, Yukosil ben Lea Rochel and Rochel Basliba Farkash, dedicated by Pinchas Todris, ben Miriam and Sarah Bas Rochel Altes. So let's begin with Purim. We hopefully will also be able to speak about something from the Parsha Kisisa. Now, Purim is vast as every aspect in Teir, Afachbav, Afachbav, the Kulabav. Every aspect of Teda, the more you look, the more you dig, the more you find. And we have, this is already the 10th year of My Life Chassidus Applied, so it's a good opportunity to welcome those here for the first time and those that are ongoing listeners and viewers. So uh, to go to chassidusapplied.com is our website where you can find this and all archive programs as well as a place to submit any question at our form, completely anonymous. Nothing is taboo, nothing is off limits, everything can be addressed and should be addressed and hopefully I can get to it. There are more questions coming in faster than I can address, but please bear with me and we'll get there. A few interesting questions that we'll address here as well, including issues around Purim, issues around drinking, issues around drugs, also a lot of questions about psychedelics recently and plant medicine and so on, so it should be a very rich and interesting program. So as I said, we'll begin with Purim. Of course, the first question is, what is the primary message and lesson of Purim? I should actually say messages and lessons, because there are many. Above all, the story of Purim, everybody knows, but it's worthwhile repeating as we read in the Megillah twice on Purim, both Monday night, Tuesday this year. And that is, and that's Israel, of course, Yerushalayim, a place where they're surrounded by a wall, Shushan Purim is the next day, Wednesday, on Tezvav, Adar, the 15th of Adar. The story, briefly, of a situation that was dire, a total genocide of the Jewish people was imminent, based on a gzerah that Haman incited with King Achishverosh, who controlled, was the king that controlled 127 countries. The entire Jewish population of the world lived there, and Anoshim, Noshim, men, women, and children were destined to be killed. And it was turned around, and it became complete turnaround. Not just was eliminated, it was transformed with the enemies being destroyed, the Jewish people celebrating, and, and hence, ever since, as Esther and Mordechai, they asked the Sanhedrin to establish that this should become a Yomtev, became a Yomtev, designated holiday that we remember this Atzala, Venapachu, we call it, the month that was transformed, because it was the entire month that was designated for this, as, as Haman threw lots 
that fell in this month. And the holiday is celebrated through, first of all, Simcha, a Sudas Purim, a festive meal, through Mishalach Monas and Matanus Lavienim, through reading the Megillah. And in general, just the entire attitude of a complete celebration. So the obvious question is, this is an event that happened back then, so why is it relevant to us today? No, you could say the relevance, we're remembering, commemorating, and it's a, it's a great mitzvah to be, show gratitude and respect and honor that which was done to us. Had the Jews been killed, we wouldn't be here today. So of course, in that sense, it's a pool nimshachas, it's a continuing perpetual effect. But still, the details of the story, the whole lead up, and every year we read it from the beginning. We don't just read from the, the miracle itself. We read first the first half of the story, the negative parts that led ultimately to the, to the redemption of Purim. So there's a Mishnah that the Baal Shem Tov interprets, that someone who reads the Megillah backwards, whatever reason, hypothetical, someone would read it backwards, it's Le'yotza. It's not that you would not perform the mitzvah of reading the Megillah. Of course, the situation seems odd, but the Baal Shem Tov's interpretation helps understand it. He says, someone reads the Megillah as if it happened in the past, it's a past event. That they're not really, because it's supposed to be, we have to not just remember, but also nasim, recreate and relive the events that happened back then. The Rebbe once explained, how that fits with a simple interpretation, because if you read the story as if it happened back then, you're essentially reading it backwards. You're reading with the end was the closest thing that happened to us. See, so like you're reading the end and going back to the beginning of the story. So technically, you're not necessarily technically reading it backwards, but you're reading it in concept backwards. So that shows us that Purim is living right now, which is the truth around everything in Torah Mitzvahs. Everything in Torah has to be new, like new and even new, as if we're experiencing Hayyim today. Even though that says about the Torah Shabbat Sav, but it includes, first of all, all Chavdal Sifre Kedish, including Megillah Esther, Sefer Esther. And in general, Torah Mitzvah is perpetual in that sense. Even though physically it may not be happening, but spiritually it's always happening. Like the story of the Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Same question you could ask. We left Egypt thousands of years ago. We're not even allowed to go back to Mitzrayim. And yet we say, in every generation, we have to a person has to consider himself as if he left Egypt. So this explains, because Mitzrayim is not just the land, it's the concept, it's the, it's the state of mind of Mitzrayim v'gvulim, of limits, constraints, inhibitions, fears, insecurities, everything that limits us. That's the real story. And actually that's the story even preceding the event itself. Then the Tater says it actually happened. So now the whole of Tater is medaberes belyenim in the language of the Shalom that I met. The Tater is speaking about spiritual things. And it hints to and alludes to things below. But it means it's not just spiritual. There was a person called Avram actually walked this earth. But what did he represent? The same thing right now. It represents chesed, which lives on right now as well. So every event and every personality and every occurrence and all the interactions that we read in the Tater are happening right now. And this applies also to Purim. So in some way, everything, not just the redemption, but even the beginning and every detail is a story of our lives. 
And in that sense, there are tremendous messages and lessons. Just to mention just a few that stand out most, start with the one where the most obvious that Hashem's name is not mentioned anywhere in the Megillah. An explanation is, even though it's God's hand, because the miracle of Purim, in contrast to Pesach, was hidden. Which means the events that happened, happened over a period of nine years. If you lived then, you may not have noticed, or you would probably not have noticed the miracle, because over a period of nine years, all kinds of events that seemed, quote-unquote, random. Achashverosh happens to be king of 127 nations. He happens to throw a party. He happens to invite Vashti. Vashti refuses to come. He happens to have her killed. Then he needs to find a replacement. It happens to be Esther, the Jewish Esther. Mordechai happens to overhear Bixen Vesedesh, a plot and conspiracy against the king. Then comes Haman, and Haman plots and conspires against the Jews to kill them all. All these pieces didn't happen overnight. They happened over a period of time. And then, then the story continues. It happens to be that that the king has insomnia one night. And they happen to read to him of all stories, a story that happened a while back with Mordechai saving his life. So he wants to reward him. And that begins a new cycle of events. Esther, meanwhile, in her own way, tells the king, invites the king and Haman, and ultimately has Haman and all his cronies destroyed, and the Gzeda, the decree, is overturned. If you looked at it at the time, you would not necessarily notice. It seems a lot of almost coincidences. But when you look backwards, you look at the events and connect the dots, it's an absolute miracle. So it's the first lesson in our lives, the same stories with our narrative. There's a choreography in every person's life. But you can't always see it while you're living it. You can look back and say, ah, now I understand this, now I understand that. Tremendous lesson. And that's what the, the, the lesson of Mitznaim is Nisim Gluyim, that's miracles that suspend nature in an open way. And that, that has its own lesson. This is a lesson that the miracles are happening in our lives, in our very narrative. The story of faith. Mordechai Yehudi, the Jews are called Yehudim. Yehuda from the word Heidah, Meidebeh. Hashem, that they deny any idolatry and they acknowledge God. The idea of, to the point of Mordechai teaches us we don't bow to anything, to man or to any man-made devices and inventions. We have only one God. We're servants of the divine, of God. And the lesson that you would think, okay, what's the big thing? You would have been nice to him, diplomatic, no, and that is critical, even though that incited Haman. But nevertheless, and you would think, okay, why do you have to just jump out at him? Many people can say, hide your Yiddishkeit, hide your Jewish pride. No, but that was ultimately our strength. And that's what we survived, the Munath, the Yehuda. So that's another lesson. The lesson of transforming even the darkness. Not just eliminating it, transforming. Nepach, like I mentioned before. Yehofchu, a transformation that even when there are things that seem dark, like we said, there's a bigger narrative, that when you finally see the light, the light is not just enough, the light transforms. It's a transformation, a transformation of the negative, that the negative not just disappears, but it becomes a catalyst, and look, we have today a holiday punim, thousands of years that we're celebrating Purim, Simcha, the Simcha, the joy.
all that came out of that dark moment. So the darkness passed, but now we also have in our lives the joy that comes out of it, which teaches us also, even when there's a negative in our life, the story doesn't end until it's over. And keep in mind that our faith, our strength. Another message is our children. Mordechai gathered the children. The children said the psukim. Again, elements of faith and strength. Of course there was ishtadlus and effort. Esther made an effort. She put herself at risk to be with HaChashverosh and approach him. But at the same time, also the fasting, the Nikolu gathering together, Achdus and the unification of the Jews, the unity of the Jews, and the children. So the lesson of, un- of children, the lesson of unity. So these are some of the tremendous lessons that apply today, just as it was then. Hayom Ma'il and Eskodim Venasim, as the Arizal interprets, that these days we remember, and what's Nasim? And we recreate. It's not just remembering. The energy of Purim exists this year, Purim as well as in every year, and every year with additional new powers and so on. So these are some of the messages and lessons. And there are, of course, many, many more. I've reviewed quite a few of them over the years. Every year we did, of course, a program around Purim time. If you want more, you can always go to those programs, back to chassidahsupply.com, and just look up the previous years. It's usually 50 weeks, uh, some take, take or give, from the last year that I gave last year on, around Purim. Okay. Why was it important... that the miracle be manifest and concealed in nature. Why was it important that part of Hashem's plan is that, that, should be manif- that, that the miracle of Purim comes about in a natural manner as opposed to the miracles of Pesach, which occurred in a supernatural manner? What can we do in today's times to notice Hashem's daily natural miracles instead of taking them for granted? Okay. So, essentially answer this question, but let's spell it out even more. So this explains, actually, that there are three types of miracles. <laughs> One is revealed miracle where you can't deny the parting of the sea, the, the makas, the plagues, and the other events that happened in Egypt. An open miracle, suspension of nature. Then there are miracles that are melubish b'teva, like Purim. It's clearly a miracle. But, as I said, you don't see Hashem's name. You don't see Hashem's hand openly. It's invisible. That's why that name is not mentioned there. But it's a clearly miracle. Then there's the miracle of nature itself. The mere fact, the sun rises. So there you could say, no, there's no redemption coming out of it. The sun rises, part of nature. No, but nature is also a miracle. As the Chacham Tzvi says, the Baal Shem Tov says it in a different language, that nature is really a miracle. The only difference between nature and miracle is frequency, how often it happens. If the sun were to rise once in our lifetimes, we'd see it as a miracle. But since it happens every day, so it's many, called Nisim Tchufis, Repeated, something repeats. You breathe every minute, 18 times a healthy person or a little less. We take it for granted. Who thinks about it? Then you see someone struggling to breathe. You realize that nature itself is a miracle. The fact that we're healthy people. What are the odds? You take the 75 or the, the trillion cells, give or take, and that they're all working in a healthy, coordinated manner is a miracle. But it's a miracle that is nature itself is a miracle. The point of it all is because we want to infuse existence, the natural existence that we call nature, which means the order. And God himself bound himself to this order. He will not 
suspend, he said, after the marble, after the flood. He won't suspend the seasons and nature as he did when the flood took place. So God himself bound himself to his own rules of nature, laws of nature. That's why it says, Koshi Kekriyas Yamsuf. Why is it difficult for God to part the sea? He created the sea, created land, he created all the rules. But because God himself binds himself, because it's his creation, there's a reason for it, whether we understand or not, but that's the, the system. So we want that system to be elevated and not think it's on, that we're independent. So to do that properly, to make a dira b'tachtenim, a dira le'ez baruch, you need to have two aspects. One is you need the tachtenim, you need existence to remain in its parameters and its structure. And second, you need to find the godly hand within it, the godliness. So for that, you need all three types of miracles, so to speak. Revealed miracles demonstrate in a very revealed way and lift us up and show us from time to time, rarely, but from time to time, that there is a God here that does suspend in the power. The second approach, as the Akedis Yitzchak writes, the Chassidus brings this, that the second way of seeing godliness is through nature itself. The very fact that nature is consistent, doesn't change, is also wondrous. So it's an amazing thing. If you see something, a machine that's consistent and perpetual and so on. And then there's the middle nest, Melubish Bateva, in a sense, bridges both. On one hand, it's manifests in nature. On the other hand, you see God's hand in a very clear way once you look closely. So that way you're not destroying existence, you're recognizing existence, and in it, discovering God. First, nature itself, that's literally on our terms, on the nature's terms. Then a, a, a nest that manifests in nature, like Purim, that's God's terms, but it still reckons with and, and, and manifests within nature, within the garments of nature, Levushia Teva, and then there are miracles that are just openly a godly experience. And that, of course, is more rare because that's not the kavanah. That's why God doesn't do miracles for no reason. It has to be a very strong reason. And the main thing is to infuse us with the strength that we go back into nature realizing that everything really is a miracle. Now, how do we find it and recognize it in our lives today? It's simply being conscientious and being focused and being uh, humble by recognizing that your successes, and even, frankly, setbacks, there's a divine hand. You do your efforts, but remember, there's always another force at work. Today, it's not such a surprise. Today, we all know that there are invisible forces that shape existence. But to take it to the next step, that there's a godly hand in everything. When he says that God perpetually creates existence, that's nature itself. That's itself already, when you think about that. Then you have events that you may not see an open miracle, but you start looking. Why did I meet this person at this moment? Why did I get this opportunity someone else didn't? It's the hand of Hashem. And when you look at your life properly, you see that. And then there are times you actually openly see a, a miracle. Whether it's, God forbid, it's someone being saved from a negative situation. Or other things that are clearly, I mean, is, is the birth of a child not a miracle? Is a healthy marriage not a miracle? So when you look closely, or not even so closely, if you just look and you, are, you care, and you're not just self, selfish and self-contained and driven by your own self, which is when you look in a mirror, you only see yourself, but you look through a glass, you see the world around you, you see things for what they are. It's pretty obvious, the miracles. Take one more example, and that is our simple our lives. Every one of us, look back a few generations. How did your father and mother get to wherever you're living right now? 
more or less, they were, in, on, on every case, you'll find more or less a miracle that everybody was killed in the Holocaust except my grandfather or, or father. Or another country, they just got out. Because we are not natives of where we are. The Jewish people are walking miracles. The fact that we've gotten through all the persecutions and the expulsions and the genocides and all the discrimination. But sometimes when things are going well, we take it for granted. So put him as a wake-up call. Don't take your life for granted. Everything is a miracle. And it's not the miracle part, the sensational part of a miracle. It means that everything is some deeper story. Don't take anything for granted. Since the name of Purim, which represents its essence, means a lottery, and the holiday of Purim actually... Let me, let me change the order of that. Another question which I think should come first is why does the miracle Purim not cause us to refrain from saying Tachnun in the month of Adar? So the question is, dear Rabbi Jacobson, because the miracle of Pesach was so great, the rabbis determined that we don't say Tachnun the entire month of Nisan. My question is, since the miracles of Purim are also great, and the Gemara clearly states that when other enters, we increase in joy, which means not just Purim, but the entire month is a joyous month. Has there ever been discussions and debates among Chazal that perhaps we, should say, we shouldn't say Tachnun the entire other? Okay, very good question. I don't recall, but that doesn't mean there isn't some discussion somewhere. Obviously, we do say Tachnun through the month. I don't recall if anybody considers, but it makes total sense based on what we just discussed. Since Anesman, that's not Malubish Bateva, demands, like saying uh, Hallel. You don't say Hallel every day. Why? Because it's only when there's a revealed miracle. We discussed this a while back. Because it's acknowledging the revelation. Revelation has power and uniqueness. The uniqueness of something. Since Purim is Malubish Bateva, so you can explain, that's why you don't say Tachlan through the month. Because you're dealing with a nest that's in Teva, so it's in the regular routine of our lives that we see these miracles. Purim itself is, of course, a special day, is a special day, the holiday. But we're talking about the rest of the month. Similar to a little what the Alter Rebbe says about month of Elul, he asks why the month of Elul is not a month, since it's Yud Gimel Midas Arachim in the revelation of the 13 attributes of divine compassion, and that's what defines a holiday, a higher revelation of the divine. So the whole month of El, we should not say, uh, we should be a Yontif. Why is it Yemei Chayel? Mundane days, weekdays. And he explains with a famous example of the Melech Basada. Because there the Melech is being revealed. Yes, it's a higher revelation, but it's Basada. It's in the garments of the field, meaning of the weekday. So the Yudgim Mitzrach are in the weekday. And that's why they're weekdays. Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur is like going into the palace with the king. The king's palace. And that's a whole different story. Month of Tishrei. Okay. How did Haman justify the killing of all the Jews due to one man, Mordechai, refusing to bow to him? Does Haman ever state the reason why he feels the entire nation of Jews are deserving of death? just because of one Jew named Mordechai that offended him by not bowing to him. How does Haman justify collective punishment of a group that had nothing to do 
with Mordechai, not bowing. And why should Achashverosh go along with the plot knowing he would lose many Jewish taxpayers if Haman is successful and ultimately that would be bad for Persia? Okay, so first of all, when it comes to an anti-Semite, and like we say, Yimach Hitler, similar name like Haman, you don't need excuses. You find one Jew does something, you're looking for that anyway. Because the, the hate didn't begin because Mordechai didn't bow to him. It wasn't like he loved Jews the day before. He came from Haman HaGogi, he came from Amalek, and we know what Amalek is like. And it was actually the mistake of Shaul that allowed Haman to emerge in the first place. So that's number one. Number two, he does say in the verse, he says, That's what he says. If you read those words, it's really the essence of every anti-Semitic statement ever said. It's one nation. They're unique. Even he recognized that. And they're spread everywhere. And their religion and their faith is different than everybody's. They stand out. What is this matter? Why can't they just be like us? There's longer explanations of what the meaning behind this. There's a classic sikh of the Rebbe Purim, Tavshech of Hay. I discussed this in previous years, where he explains the difference between Muhammad and Achashvedish, the Balha, the Balha tail and the Balha Boir. They both, the Moshal, they both saw the Jews as a problem. One saw the Jews as a problem, like a hole in my field, and another saw them as a mound in my field. So, two ways that anti Semitism manifests, and two reasons behind it. Not here's the place to go into that. So he says it very clearly. And interestingly, he also says the Mailavin, Amechad. They're one nation. They're Achdus. That's what he would like to achieve. That when they're separate and they're divisive, that's their downfall. As Bilam also proved. You can't really attack the Jews if they're completely united. So there's much to be read into that verse. So he does say, and Mordechai him represented the Jewish people. Mordechai Yehudi, remember the whole Megillah, the Jews are called Yehudim. Why? Yehudi means Haidah. They acknowledge God, not Avedazar, and not Haman, who was like an Avedazar in that sense. And whether he knew consciously or subconsciously, Mazlayo Chazi, he recognized the threat because he will never be worshipped by Mordechai and the Jewish people. Mordechai, of course, represented all the Jews. So that's just a brief um, summary of understanding what was going on. As far as Achashverosh, so we know the different opinions, whether he was a tipish, a fool, and just went along, was very, or he was worse than Haman, and, was, and, and more sly, and hated the Jews even more, or Hafachvach, he was wishy-washy. Amalazeh, Amalazeh, whoever spoke to him last, that was his opinion. But regardless... He did go along as far as the money goes, so we know there was a whole transactional discussion here too. Haman was ready to compensate. But remember, hatred is hatred. When you see hatred, even though the Jews had money in Germany and in Europe, still the hatred was more powerful than the money, especially thought they could confiscate the money. <laughs> Unfortunately, tragically. Okay. Next question. Why did Haman's daughter defend the Jews? So here someone writes this. I'm not sure what the source is. I'm just reading a question. I don't recall this Gemara, but in Tractate Megillah 16a, someone writes, it tells of a conversation between Haman and his daughter in which Haman promises her 70 rooms filled with treasures. Haman's daughter replied that I would accept this gift only if the Jews were saved and not harmed. If someone can find that, and maybe, maybe it's in... Um, 
Targum Sheni of, uh, of, of Megillah Sestin, or some Medrashim. It's not a Megillah, uh, Tazayin Aleph, I mean, that is uh, 16a. So we see there's a tension in Haman's house, and not everyone in his family agrees with this plot. If this is indeed such a medrash, so I'll address it. But in case it's not, so obviously this question stands corrected, and so do I by reading it. I just didn't uh, look up if I could find another medrash, but I just don't recall. But again, lady is saying it. So I'm reading it fine. If, at worst, it ends up being a Purim tater. My question is, if we say Haman came from Amalek, then we must say his daughter is also from Amalek. How is it possible for someone from Amalek to stand up and defend us? Unless the case is that most of Amalek are any, but not every single one of them. There's also a medrash that says when Haman was pulling the horse with Mordechai in it, actually this medrash is the Gemara in Megillah, Haman's daughter assumed it was Mordechai pulling the horse and emptied a chamber pot off the roof and landed on Haman, humili- on Haman humiliating him. Then, of course, the Gemara continues. When she realized who it was, she jumped out and she killed herself. Another question can be, if Haman's daughter was arguing to save the Jews, why would she attempt to humiliate Mordechai? Perhaps the real story is she dumped the chamber pot on Haman on, perha- on purpose because she was angry at him for his plot against the Jews. Uh, this is an interesting theory, which I don't, I've never seen. I don't know if I even agree with. You need to have, first of all, we need to find a source that she actually defended the Jews. Second of all, we have to know the motive. Maybe it wasn't a good motive necessarily. Maybe she had her own agenda. So I don't want to jump on that. Regarding the chamber pot, that we know. And she did end up wanting to humiliate Mordechai. She ended up humiliating her father. And then she took her own life because of how, how, how what she felt. And that can be discussed, what the lessons are in that. So if anybody has more information that would like to share, like to share with me, I'll definitely discuss it in a future episode. Um, but as, again, as far as her, even if there is such a story, it doesn't necessarily mean that she's suddenly not a Molik. It could mean, as I said, she had her own motives and her own agenda. Okay. Um, as far as the dumping, one lesson you can learn from it is, again, there's always a uh, hidden hand behind things. You know, people have good intentions. Haman ended up building a gallows for Mordechai. What ends up happening? The gallows is built for himself. He ends up being hung on the same gallows. She wants to throw a pot on Mordechai and hurt a Jew. Instead, she does it to her father, and look what happens. So it's again like a v'napach, a transformation, that sometimes a negative thing doesn't just get uh, pushed aside, but it gets transformed into something positive. Haman thought he would be rewarded by, by, uh, by Achishverosh. So that's why he tells Achishverosh, what should you do when Achishverosh asks to someone that, that, has, uh, that has served the king, and the king found favor in the king's eyes? So he thought it was Mim. So he gave him a whole list. And then what happens? V'napachu. It ends up being applied to Mordechai, to his chagrin. And many other details in this story. Okay, so it all still captures the V'napachu. Now comes the question, why is it called Purim? Why is the holiday named after the Lot's Haman Drew? It's a strange name. Purim. Hashem Zer, Apur. He drew lots. The lots were not positive. It fell in the month of Adar. And he realized, Haman, that this is the month when Moshe passed away. So he thought it was a perfect month to come out against the Jews. The little did he know the Gemara says that it was also the day Moshe was born. So that only intensifies the question. It was not lots thrown for a positive reason, for a negative reason. And they ended up actually not even working. So why do we throw lots? 
So Chassidus explains, because Gredel is a level that's Lamaila Metam Vedas. The whole story of Purim at the end of the day, like we spoke about, was a matter of Hedah, Mesidus Nefesh, Kabbalah Seil. Not a rational approach. The Jews were completely adamant. The Alter Rebbe writes, Mesidus Nefesh, all year round, they stood in Mesidus Nefesh. Stood strong. Mordechai would not bow. All this is a super-rational commitment to God. Goyrel represents the super-rational. There's rational Avedah, Pitam Vedas, Nefesh, Ruach, and Neshama. Then there's Chaya Yechida. And that's why Purim is compared to Yem Kippur, which is also a Goyrel. The Goyrel of the Sel Azazel, which Sel would go this way, and which one would go this direction? Goyrel. As the Sevs and Shuvah Sagainim, the Goyrel is not random. Goyrel is allowing the godly hand, which is above rational, to manifest. It says in the Shuvah Sagainim, they write, that anyone that says Goyrel is a random thing, Goyrel is like, just like a Seres Adibris. That's what it says. That's why that the land was also divided, part of one of the ways it was divided was through throwing lots. So there's an element of that comes when you throw a lot. It's not rational. So even though Haman did it for his negative reasons, but the truth is, again, the truth is there's a deeper, in Kedusha there's a deeper element of Gedel. And that's why Purim is Adelayada. You go again to a place Layada, higher than Yoda. Not, God forbid, the comparing the evil to good. But you go to a place that's beyond both, that has the power to transform evil to good, which is the story of Purim. And that's why it's named Purim. It's similar to Miriam, not Miriam, sorry, the daughter of Pari, who named Moshe, Moshe. But his parents named him a different name. Why do we give her a name? Because she drew him out of water. That's why we call him Moshe. So this explains, because water is Moshe's essence. The world of thought, the hidden worlds of water. And that's where Moshe comes from, and he comes into the revealed worlds to bridge the two. To bridge the hidden and the revealed. The divine, superconscious, what we call Chach with Chach and all the way bring the Teda down in a revealed way in this, in this world. So though her intention was maybe a technical one, but in it lies a deeper reason. The same thing with Purim. So in this context, someone writes like this. Since the name of Purim represents its essence means lottery, and the holiday of Purim, and the entire month of others is a good luck time for us, body mazel is the expression, the mazel is healthy, a more, more opportune time, would it be a good time to buy a lottery ticket? May Hashem bless that someone in our community wins the lottery and uses the money to help us help as many people and trade organizations as possible. Happy Purim. That I never heard before, that it's a time to buy a lottery ticket. Maybe in the month of Adar, in general, Bari Mazlet. We all know that Rebbe's approach to lottery tickets is to buy one. And you can rely on that if Hashem wants, but not to become obsessed and addicted to lottery tickets. So that we have to keep that also in balance. I've been talking about this also a while back. But beyond that, for sure there isn't like that, a directive. Is it, is it fitting? Maybe it's a good time. Try it out. I'm putting itself. That I've never heard before. Purim has its mitzvahs. I don't know if this is one of them. Um, but uh, Hashem should bless. Anyone makes a keli, whatever type of keli you make. Maybe it's a keli of pur, Purim. That, that, and Ebeshter should bless you, Taka, with Hashirah, exactly as you said, and bless everybody. Yeah. We'll talk about this uh, shortly, about Hashirah. 
story of the Rebbe, Purim Tavshin Tezvav. But we'll get to that shortly. Next question. Can Rabbi Jacobson please explain the concept of anapachu related to Purim and what Chassidus says about it? I always understood it to mean everything is inside out and upside down. Whatever Haman tried to do to us, the opposite happened and was done to Haman. In this, is this energy of anapachu available for us every Purim and how do we make a keli for it to receive these blessings? For example, if someone is single, the Vanapachu and the opposite should happen and they should be blessed with a good shidduch. Or if someone was poor most of his life, their life. Vanapachu and they should have the opposite and see revealed blessings for abundant wealth. Thank you and happy Purim. Um, well, absolutely what you just said are good examples. So I already explained earlier what the Vanapachu, but let's spell it out a bit more. There's one Hashem Echad, one God. God created everything. Yetzir Eiru Baruch Heshech. He shaped light and created darkness. That there was darkness that covered the entire world. That Simpsum Chsidis, is darkness. It's Cheshach. But as Chsidis explains at length, the Cheshach is not a separate entity. It's Simpsum Bishvil Hagili. All darkness is there for in order to bring light and to bring even a deeper light. The kavan of the concealment is to bring out even deeper light. And ultimately to reveal Hashem Achad, both in the darkness and the light, in the language of Shari Yechid Vamuna, both the Gili is from Shem Havaya, or Shem Kael Chesed, and Hein Hein Gvurasev, and the Tzimtzum comes from Hashem's Gvur. It's a power of God, it's a divine power. Just like the power of a teacher to reveal is a power of the teacher to conceal, or to refrain. From the perspective of the student, it seems like it's concealed. And it is on that level. In reality, it's not an illusion. But its purpose is revelation. So in a general life, when things are going, we call normal or healthy, so they're day and night. And they both are divine creations. And each one has their role. But then there are times when darkness descends. Like a time of Purim, before Purim, before the Ness. Or Mitzrayim, or other times of darkness. So you can think, what do we do now? Darkness is control. No, darkness is never in control. The whole purpose is ultimately air. And even a stronger air. So our job is to see it through. To not be deceived by the hell. Not be deceived by the fact that God is hiding. Like the example of the Magid that the father hides from his child. And to keep looking and then discover even a deeper light and even a deeper strength. All the way in the Helema Atzmi in the language of Chassid. This is the highest levels of where that concealment came from which is even deeper than the power to reveal. And put him manifest that. That Yisurim and That's why it's Venapachu. Not just enough, okay, we were in darkness, now let's move to light. The darkness is also for the light. The Arar Haman and Baruch Mordechai equal the transformation of Arar Haman. To recognize that it's all coming from one Hashem and put him manifest that in the most direct way. The lesson to us is very clear that even when we go through a setback, or a difficulty, or even a darkness that's real. God forbid a loss, a tragedy. We have to remember the story of Purim. That ultimately the goal is like all four names and expressions and levels. That's in brief. And yes, indeed, that every one of us should experience Vinapahu, a transformation from one extreme to the next. That's what Purim teaches us. That's perfectly possible. And as it happened then, it can happen every moment. 
Always keep that in mind. And how do we do it? Yehudi. Through Hidah. Through recognizing. Through faith. Through betach and trust. And recognizing. We do whatever we can nature, naturally. But we also look up. And we draw down those powers. That help, the, help us transform the tzimtzum to air. The cheshach to, to light. The darkness to light. And yogin l'simcha. And the pain, affliction to joy. Okay. Let's see here. Where are, are... There are more questions, and I think I'll, maybe I'll do in a follow-up in the next week's class. I'll do, since it's a Hemshech to put him, I'll do some more because I want to cover more topics here. So let me go to a question about the Rebbe. Someone writes like this. Second chances. Our religion offers us many second chances. For example, Pesach Sheni, Yom Kippur Katan. In the 1950s, at a Purim Fabrengen, namely Tovshin Tezvov, year 1955, the Rebbe announced that anyone who wants to be wealthy should raise their hand. Since I was born, I wasn't born until 1970. Where's my second chance of participating in this bracha, in this blessing? What, if anything, can I do now? And by the way, when this bracha is fulfilled for me in a revealed manner in this physical world, I have full intention to give a lot of tzedakah, especially to organizations that teach and spread chassidus. Wink, wink. Thank you. Often when someone is giving out brachas, another person writes, I walk over and ask for a bracha to be wealthy. They usually refuse and meet my request with scorn and say that's not a proper bracha to ask for. I feel... That by them saying it's inappropriate to ask for wealth, they're directly insulting and being disrespectful to the Rebbe. Because the Rebbe set a precedent that it's okay to pray and ask for wealth. When one put him during a fabreng and he said, anyone who wants to be wealthy, raise your hand. So absolutely, Ashiris is a bracha. To be obsessed with it, you have to do your shtadlis and ask for the bracha. We have our main effort, like I said, is focusing on what Hashem wants from us. Hashem wants it will happen. And you have to make your efforts. And then there was Esratzen like Purim. So the question is, in a different way of putting it, is the Rebbe's, is the Rebbe's offer on Purim 5.7.15 for wealth still relevant today? So it's a good question, because on one hand you could say it was an Esratzen moment, and that's why afterwards when people wanted, the Rebbe said that was the moment, that year Purim, that moment. On the other hand, a Rebbe's a Rebbe. I'm sure he has Rachmanus, and would definitely would extend every blessing if a person asks. So you could say in concept... You can definitely try. And in some way, it lives on. Everything is nitzchi. And perhaps if you raise your hand today, but raising your hand in a real sincere way, maybe the Rebbe will uh, open the door for you. I'm just saying maybe. This is my own feeling. I'm not saying because you could clearly say it was also a one-time thing. This happened many times where the Rebbe said that this was that moment and that uh, opportune time. But in concept, why not try? The Rebbe is going to be kind, he'll intervene, and Hashem will bless you with the biggest Hashid as possible. So that covers that. I, I will do one more thing on Purim. Well, there's more things on Purim I want to address, but someone asked this interesting question about Vashti. It's an interesting angle. Is it, what can we learn from Vashti's decision to resist the king's command? Is it possible that Vashti's rebellion was an act of bravery? How does Vashti's role in the story reflect broader themes of power, gender, and agency in Jewish tradition? How can we use the story to inform our understanding of the social and political dynamics of our own time? 
to re- read it in more detail. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, as I've been reflecting on the story of Purim, I'm struck by the character of Queen Vashti and her role in the narrative. In the Purim story, Vashti is often portrayed as a villain for refusing to obey King Ahasuerus' request to appear before him and his guests. However, I am curious about the underlying motivations for Vashti's actions and the broader implications of her defiance. What can we learn from Vashti's decision to resist the king's command, and how can we reconcile our actions with the, with the traditional interpretation of the story? Is it possible that Vashti's rebellion was an act of bravery and defiance against oppressive patriarchal norms rather than a simple act of disobedience? Furthermore, how does Vashti's role in the story reflect broader themes of power, gender, and agency in Jewish tradition? How can we use her story to inform our understanding of the social and political dynamics of our own time? Thank you for your insight. So first of all, let's make this clear. Vashti was a, quite a, uh, a character, anti-Semitic in her own nature, as we know how she oppressed her Jewish servants and so on, maidservants. Um, so she was fight for not sadekis, as we say. A villain in her own right. The question about the story with Ahasuerus and Vashti is very interesting because firstly, actually her defiance is what led to Esther replacing her. But that's not something she knew. Secondly, she was defying who? Ahasuerus, who was himself who he was, and, and his request of her was really inappropriate. So you could say there's a lesson in that. A woman standing up to a husband that's asking to do something not sneezing and not appropriate. Even though it was used the other way around that, look, all the women will defy their men now. So you could definitely learn a lesson from that. However, you could also ask the question, what does defiance mean? Does that mean every person doesn't like what their husband suggests or asks is something that's important to defy? There is the element of Ishak Shere Esed at Sein Baila. A proper woman will follow her, her, her husband's will, but then the Rebbe interprets, Esa also means create her husband's will when the will is not exactly appropriate or, or not the right will. To create the will, to initiate, to generate it. So there's a lot to be discussed around this, I have no doubt that you can learn lessons. Everything in Torah is afakh but you can find deeper meaning. And I'm sure you can find some, some positive lessons as well in what is appropriate of a husband to ask of his wife, even a king, even though he was humiliated, what's not. She may have deserved being summoned like that because, as I said, she was herself a, a, a witch, if you want to put it that way. But still, there's still the lesson of a little dignity that she wanted. Now, I'm not trying to I'm just saying lessons that we could perhaps learn from every aspect of the story. So I appreciate you bringing it up and I'm sure it's something we can talk about more. Uh, and I would love to hear people's comments as well. Maybe I'll address the issue at a future date and more at length on many, the many different angles. Okay. Now, a topic that comes up every year, let me address it. Let's deal with it. Drink, drinking on Purim. Is it forbidden to daven while under the influence of drugs or alcohol? As in the sons of Aaron went to the Beis Amidus drunk and it didn't work out too well for them. Well, they actually were consumed by the fire and they died. Are there exceptions made on Purim and Simchas Another way someone writes it, would Aaron's sons have been allowed to enter the Beis Amidus drunk if it was Purim or Simchas And finally, one more question in this, uh, this family. In the case of Aaron's sons who entered the Beis Amigdash drunk and died, and the Purim story of Rava and Rabzeira, Rabbi Rabzeira, 
who drank too much, and one accidentally, come the rabbi v'shachta le rabzeira, the rabbi accidentally killed the other, the rabbi explains that the deaths were due to their going to a too high, high spiritual level, where their souls couldn't remain in a physical body, well, namely not souls, but rabzeira's soul, also called Kalesa Nefesh. Why didn't Rabbi and Abzeda learn from a lesson from the mistakes of Aaron's sons instead of repeating the same mistakes? Okay, so first of all, let's start with the pure halacha. Yes, it's absolutely forbidden to daven under the influence of uh, drugs or alcohol, specifically in Shulchan Aruch, go to Erechaim, Simon Tzadik Tess talks about it explicitly. Yes, it talks about particular parts of davening, Shemin and Krishna. And the Gemara in Erevin, that does distinguish between someone who's totally drunk and someone who's drank. It's under the influence. During in Ashoseh and Ashikur. In Erevin it is Samagdal uh, Aleph, 64a. The Rambam brings it also in the laws of Tefillah, Hilchus Tefillah, Perigdal Dalar Halachi Yud Zayin, 417. So that's clear. And the simple reason, as the Gemara explains, you're standing before the king when you're davening. The difference in a drunk is someone who is completely... Uh, drunk and uh, the other one is at least standing before the king the other one is completely disrespectful so that's why the question is whether they have to daven a second time or not if you did daven under the influence but bottom line is it's definitely inappropriate and that's why B'nai Adon even though we make Kiddush and Yain but to go into the Beis HaMikdash Beis HaMikdash you have to go with total humility now they were great as the Erech Chaim says they came from a deep passion came from a very pure place but it was Ratzay without a shuv, as Chassidus explains. And that's why in the Pasha Achrei Meiz B'nei Adon, it says, B'zeis Yoveh, This is how you shall come to the Kedush, to the Holy of Holies. Certain guidelines. They went in with too much passion, and that ultimately consumed them. And that's why it's inappropriate. The Rebbe actually quoted, Yain V'sheicher Altej, that was the beginning of the Rebbe's Gzeda, against drinking more than four cups and all the different limitations. He brought that posseg, that Yayim V'sheich Al-Tesh. When you're standing in a, in a holy place, there's no drinking. So it wouldn't make a difference, put him or not put him. When, you, when we daven put him, you're not supposed to be drunk. It's the same Shulchan Aruch. Birches Kenim is another example. That's why Simchas Teda, they make Birches Kenim during Shachris. Bottom line is this, that um, the question is how stringent we are. There are different opinions in Aloha, how strict you are about it. But overall, the spirit of drinking and standing before God I mean, to get drunk? The only time we talk about any type of drinking was only because we're moving some of the resistance of the animal soul. Its whole purpose was something higher. It was never a mean, an end in itself. It wasn't just to have a hilanke, a social uh, party. And the Rebbe made it clear that that's not the way anymore in this generation. Even when it was allowed previously in certain circumstances. As far as Purim goes, it's a mitzvah, it's chai adla yada. So by Fabrengen, generally the Rebbe said, one person should be yetzer for everyone. He didn't insist everyone have adla yada. Even though there were times the Rebbe did take off the gzeda. So that has to be done with discretion and properly. We're not talking about children. We're not talking about in disrespectful ways. And we have to follow what the Rabbanim say about it. So you have to ask your local Rav. And you have to ask someone. And everyone's situation is different. You're talking about a 70-year-old chassid. That the way he drinks is with the whole Yiddish Shemaim. You're talking about a young person who's just having a party and enjoying themselves. So all this has to be taken in consideration, even on Purim. 
And therefore, yes, just to get drunk, that's not an Indian to get drunk, especially when you see what comes out of it. Nothing, nothing healthy. We're not even talking about, we talk about alcoholism. We're talking about saying a few times, L'chaim. The Adolayod that can be discussed, and I've discussed this in the past, what that means. Sometimes it means through, uh, through learning Siddhas. Get to a place that's a super conscious place. As far as Shachta, the Rabbah, the Rabbah, is exactly as the Rebbe says that Rabbah, the name Rabbah means abundant. He revealed primis atere, seidus atere, nichnisiyayin yotzeh seid, and he overwhelmed Rabzeira, and that's why Shachta aimed for Shachat el Moshach, not that he killed him, but he caused Kleis HaNefesh, actual Kleis HaNefesh. Why didn't they learn from Bnei Adin? Because he was doing it in a way, he was like teaching him primis atere. And according to Rabbi, he was trying to keep it a Ratzi Veshuv. So I'm assuming, I don't remember if the Rebbe addressed it in the Sikha, that even though knowing Bnei Adin, they both got consumed by it. He believed here, Rabbi, that he could control him. That's why the next year he told him, come, let's do it again. Let's do it the right way. Understanding that there is a right way that has to be done with the right type of kalim. It didn't work because Rabbi Zayda did overwhelm him at the end of the day. So we have all the lessons that we need from all of this. Okay. Um, let us now go over to Someone asked a question about the ninth of Adr. Let me address that. The Shulchan Aruch says that the ninth of Adr is a fast day because of a story in the Talmud. It's a Shabbos uh, Yudzayin Aleph, 17a, where the students of Beishamim killed the students of Beishil with swords in order to prevent them from voting for rules on halachas that were on the ballot that day. One, why is this another fast day from the past no longer observed, but some fast days from the olden days are still observed? Two, what are we to make of the story in the Talmud? I always understood that, that and, and in other places in the Talmud it says that disagreements between these two schools were philosophical only and that the students were friendly and respectful to each other. How could a disagreement have devolved into violence? So, first of all, regarding the fast, it's Taka Brot and Shulchan Aruch, Erechaim Tov Kuf Pei, Simen Tov Kuf Pei, is it Tovkov Tzadik? Yeah. And the Beis Yosef actually says that we don't follow this uh, Tainus, but it's recognized to remember the, the day. Secondly, as far as the Gemara, there's plenty of commentaries on it that discuss it. So let's establish this. Number one, in the Gemara in Bavli, in Shabbos, it doesn't say, that. it says they stuck a, a knife into the that's what it says, which was the common the custom that before something was determined, they stuck a knife. It doesn't say they killed anybody. Rapsag, Rapsag Dugan already addresses it in his commentary on Yerushalmi. Because Yerushalmi, it does say that they killed. But the Karban Eida negates and rejects any suggestion that it actually killed. It meant that they threatened to kill. And that needs to be discussed as well. But most of the commentaries learned that this is not actual. It was a threat, it was figurative, and so on. As I said, the Bavli for sure doesn't say it. And Rapsad Yugon writes that explicitly. Look at the Karban Eidi in Rishalmi, Shabbos as well, um, Pedek Aleph, I think it's Mishnah Dalit, um, in Rishalmi. In, uh, and that's the bottom line. 
The Rebbe Nasich explains that the Gemara says it's like Kiyem Asiyah Se'egel, when Shammai and Hillel had these disagreements. Doesn't say Kecheta Egel, doesn't say like, like the Egel, like the day that the Egel was built. Because the day the Egel was built could have been two ways. As Aaron said, it could have been a day that could have been a celebration that Moshe come back. It ended up being the opposite. The same it says about the translation of, the, of, of uh, Chumash, of Teira, into Greek. That's Kiyem Asiyah Se'egel. Because the potential that the translation could end up causing problems, being misunderstood, distortions, negative forces, it, 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 it take, it, just uh, corrupting it. So the bottom line is that it potentially has a negative element when there's a disagreement. But the kavanah of this agreement is a positive one. Different opinions. And the different opinions, when they're done in a peaceful way, the way it's meant to be, creates actually a harmony. And you get more crystallized idea. But because like on day two, the creation of Machlekes, so it doesn't say Kitev. Tev. Because because once you have two different entities, the creation of the diversity, the kia above and the kia below, the waters above, the waters below, so potential for divisiveness. But diversity could also be the potential for harmony, for teferis. So that's why on the th- third day it says, twice tev. The Rebbe explains it also with the fact that Chassidim cried when they saw the Alter Rebbe explaining Chassidim very, in a very Chabad way. They saw that people, may not, people won't necessarily, once they understand it, regular people may not fully appreciate it. And it could be used in a negative way. But the goal was actually the opposite, transforming that even in Seichel, Anushi, and even the sake of the animal soul, we could also understand godliness. So that's how you have to understand it. So the Gemara is talking on the potential, what could happen when diversity turns into divisiveness. But diversity could also turn into beauty and harmony. Shalom. Shalom is not the absence. Shalom means taking different colors, different shapes and use, different musical notes and creating one harmony within diversity. That's Teferes, Ches and Gvuda. And then Teferes comes and synchronizes and harmonizes and integrate, integrates them. A lot of questions have come in, and I want to address that. Well, this will be the, well, this will conclude this program. Psychological interventions. With a recent hype about plant medicine and psychedelics, to be used to deal with trauma, abuse, and addiction, how do we avoid the risks and irresponsible use of these experiences? And I'll read a few more questions. What is Tehidah view on psychedelics? Were the Tehidahs and other rituals a form of mind-altering experiences? What would the Rebbe be advising about digging in the past and dealing with traumas? Which interventions and therapies are acceptable? How about breathwork, EMDR? EMDR is eye movement and um, uh, eye movement uh, will come to me. It's, it's a using an eye movement to help people get back into their early memories and so on. And of course, there are many other interventions. So let me just address this um, just read a few more questions that came in. I don't see any mention of breathwork in the topics list online. Would you be able to discuss this and if Chassidus would talk to the, it at all? Okay. 
Is it true that Ketedis were mind-altering and used for the Kohen Gadol service of Yom Kippur? Is it possible many of the miracles we hear are a result of psychedelic trips? Moshe in the burning bush or even Matan Teda? So, I read a letter a few weeks ago in episode 402 where the Rebbe makes it very clear that using it for divine purposes is not the way. The way is, as we spoke with Derech HaTeva, Eberster gave us Teda Mitzvahs, that everybody knows how to use Teda Mitzvahs properly, that's another issue, but that's Imreiku Mikemu, that's Achsadna weakness in us. But the Teda has everything you need. And it's the responsibility, and it behooves the leaders of our time to apply the Teda to every given situation. Al Rebbe wrote a tiny, he says, all kol eitzes bavedis Hashem. And if you can't find the answer, go to the G'delem Shabir, go to the mature, emotionally mature people that can that direct us. There's sometimes imreku, which means we can't find it, but it's mikem, that's our problem. On the other hand, yes, there is the art concept, and when it comes to healing, there's given a permission to a doctor. Now, we all understand that makes that's very easy to determine when it comes to a heart issue, God forbid, other illnesses and other problems, physical ones. When it comes to more psychic issues, psychological, emotional, traumas, it's a thin line. Where do you turn to? Do you turn to chassidus or do you turn to a doctor? So that we've discussed. As a matter of fact, this whole program, My Life Chassidus Supply, began. The early programs, that's what I addressed. I did a lot of research on that. So there's no question clinical issues that are diagnosed as a problem. The, the, the need of a doctor is there. But a doctor that understands also the spiritual and respects and understands chassidus, that would be the best. A chassidus-based psychology. But since we don't have a perfect version of that, we have the, in the sources we have it, but it's not been applied. So that's why there are a lot of issues that have to be addressed. So first of all, when it comes to Aderech and Avedis Hashem, that's not, no. To suggest dictators and these miracles is absolutely sacrilegious and inappropriate. These are highly, high-level people, souls, who worked very hard at experiencing godliness. They spent 210 years in suffering in Mitzrayim. And before that, Avram, Yitzhak, Yankov, they struggled to find God, and they paid a heavy price for it. That's what made them soulful people. It wasn't through substances. It wasn't through externals. That's not denying that a psychedelic can sometimes give a person that type of epiphany. But that's not what they depended on. That's why you don't find the Teda. I spoke earlier about alcohol. Same thing with drugs. The same idea. That's not the way. To use alcohol to go to Kodesh Kadoshim, God forbid. Especially after B'zeis Yovayat, after the Hashem says how to enter. And we have the Rebbe for this as well, who tells us clearly about alcohol in our time. And equates it even with drugs in some places. So that's not a method for Avedis Hashem. Talking about medication now, as far as medicine, why is it different if it can help a person? So that's, let's just distinguish between the two, and that's critical to distinguish. So it's not for spiritual reasons, it's not for serving God, it's not, not, that's not for the reasons. If we want to talk about it from the point of view of health, so then you need to determine who is the proper practitioner. You need a real doctor. How, who determines what's a real doctor? So again, you're going to have debates. A lot of doctors will say they, they're square, they're not open for alternative methods. Fine. So you need to have doctors that do the research and do the study because you're also dealing with, would you go to anyone for heart surgery? No. You want someone who's an expert. 
who's has, who has experience, who's, who's been endorsed by others. So the same thing when you open up the mind of a person, in any matter, in any matter whatever it may be, you want also somebody that has that sensitivity, understands the need when necessary, will not go overboard, will not do it for any sensational reasons, which we'll discuss in a moment, and someone with training and uses it for a means to an end. You don't do the surgery, you don't open up a person's psyche and soul and mind and go back to past memories and traumas and we understand with just to do it. You do it because there's a reason to do it. Nothing else has worked. This is... So then you're dealing, but it has to be under the guidance of a responsible person because you can have plenty of side effects when you open, just like heart surgery can have side effects. I'm just using that as an example. And here it could be even worse because it's not a physical thing. It's opening up, it's chemicals and so on that open up the mind, bring a person back to places that, as I said, if it could help. So it has to, must be done in the most responsible fashion. Which leads me to another thing. Very often when there's a new approach to things, or at least become more new, it's not new. Remember, many of these, uh, med- many of these plant medicines, or all of them, and uh, are here thousands of years. And different tribes have used them, and that's a lot of places where it where it's originates from. But once it becomes something like in the Western world, like everything becomes somewhat, I don't want to call it commercialized, but it becomes sensationalized. Oh, this magic drug. You have to take a lot of care. So so another person asked the question. I see some people advocating it. They're not doctors. They're advocating. Because yes, they think it's a miracle cure. And it's feeding into the so-called trauma hype. Now, don't get me wrong. Trauma is a real thing and has affected people in very deep ways. But you don't want to turn it into, okay, now this is what we're going to do. This is the miracle solution. Yes, we have to address it, but with discretion and with humility. Wherever you see there's too much hype and too much sensationalism around something, you start wondering, what's the intention? Is it like what someone's coming to be the savior here? We're going to save everybody. I'm the only one that has the brave and courage, the, the brave and courage enough to talk about it. That can be a part of it. It's not about egos. It's not about I'm the pioneer. It's humility. I remember hearing once from a very big doctor. He worked in infertility. And I asked him, one of the biggest, Dr. Griffo was his name. And he said, we don't know the mysteries of God. God gave us tools. Sometimes, as doctors, we seem, as a person is infertile, doesn't seem like they can have a child, and then they have a child. Some people, everything seems to be working right, they don't have one. There's a higher hand. The humility is necessary when it comes to this. And discretion, case by case, each person evaluated properly. Once it becomes something that's mass, it becomes something that becomes, everyone's doing it, so to speak, and this is like the new fad, it has plenty of other side effects. Again, this is not to dismiss. I'm not coming from a place where we're afraid to go there because it has stigma and some people are feeling that it's like off limits. It's not the point. It's like every medicine. A new medicine is discovered. You have to really take a lot of care. It may be tremendously helpful to some people, and I know some people it's helped, but I also know people that has destroyed their lives. I'm dealing right now with a couple where one of the people in the couple started going on many of these ceremonies and it's actually destroying the marriage because it's not focused. I've spoken to some very top practitioners, people who guide, the guides that lead people through the ceremonies and so on. And one of them actually told me, I'm not doing ceremonies anymore. I'm doing the integration afterwards. The key is you need to be focused. 
I've heard this from quite a few people. You have to know what are you addressing. You take a medication for diabetes, you're trying to keep your sugar low. You take a medication for heart disease, you're trying to do something else, blood thinners and so on. What is it directed toward? And make sure that it's going in that direction. Not just, oh, I feel open now. I feel like I now can acknowledge my trauma. Now I feel free. I know what's been blocking me. That's part of it. But it has to go towards something productive. Or else it could become an end in itself. And this is part of the maturity that's necessary. Maturity is a key word. So you ask the question with the Rebbe, with the, someone asked the question, um, what would the Rebbe be advising about digging in the past and dealing with traumas? So the Rebbe's initial approach, and I'm quoting from different places, would be behavioral is often the beginning of everything. Live a life that God wants you to live. Teirah mitzvahs, imbuchu telechu, you do it right. Right. I'm not talking about a traumatized Yiddishkeit. I'm not talking about a toxic Yiddishkeit. I'm not talking about a religion that was used to hurt people and abuse people. Find the healthy one version, which means not the healthy version, the healthy original, and follow that, the Ibishta will bless you. If that doesn't help, or it helps, but it doesn't help enough, so then, just like we go to a doctor, you have to go to somebody, go to Mashpia, go to a Rav. If they are appropriate, they will also look at the situation. Maybe the person needs someone to talk to more, someone to open up to. They have a challenge. What's the challenge? Are they able to get married? Are they married and the marriage is going well? Look at what's going on. If need be, then go further and say we need a professional perhaps, a, a psychological professional, a therapist. Hopefully someone that can use but if it's someone that's good and can work with a person, by all means. Optimally, when Molar is there, Hashem Kamayim Liyam Mechasim, we'll be able to find it all in Chesidus. But if we can't find it now in Reiku, Mikemhu, so then we have to find people who are sensitive and understand what a soul is and work hand in hand. Not someone that, for example, is going to say the whole religion throw out because it was toxic for you. Find a way to show them, throw out the toxins, kliposei zarak, throw out the peels, but retain the fruit. They're beautiful things. Yiddishkeit is God-given. It's God's blueprint for living the healthiest life, including the healthiest psychological life. You may not see it yet. Some people sometimes, mechalim Shabbos achas, kedei lishmer Shabbos harbe, because the Shabbos they had, they simply can't, has, has been too damaging to them. So I'm not giving a heter that anyone can do that. But in case the circumstances are such, then the depekoch nefesh deichekola But the goal is deichekola teira is not to stay away from teira, it's to come back to teira. And Adirabe, the pekoch nefesh is part of teira, is the way to preserve teira. So all that's part of the game plan. Someone that understands all of that and understands it with sensitivity and maturely and not just jumping on the bandwagon, okay, let's all do this, this is going to heal us all has to be done sensitively and very, very maturely and not with any sensationalism and excitement. Actually, something that any doctor knows, you don't get excited, I'm going to do heart surgery. It's something that is painful, something that is a lot of empathy needed. You're helping a person, opening up the sacred soul, the sacred heart of a person who's, who's in pain and trying to help them. And you need the right person who can do that. That's some of the thoughts I have on this topic. So as far as the different interventions, um, and uh, that you mentioned, whether it's breath work or EMDR or others, 
Each has to be looked at and hopefully with, and should be looked at with professionals and see case by case where it may be needed and to the extent that it's needed, not more than that. Because you don't want anyone getting addicted to the very thing that you want that should heal you. Another thing important to point out, medicine for someone who needs medicine is not necessarily medicine for someone who doesn't need medicine. Meaning for a healthy person, taking certain medicines can make, make, make cause problems. So this cannot be, as I said before, a joyride for anyone. That I think everyone agrees. But you want to make sure there's no abuse because whenever you're dealing with things like this, it can always spill over and be used by people who are too young or not ready. Again, all in a controlled setting by the right professional people. The Rebbe's words, Yedid Mumcha. A Yedid, yes, someone who knows and you trust, knows you, but also a Mumcha, an expert. An expert means not just an expert that read a few books. An expert means someone who has experience, the maturity, and everything that comes with expertise. Okay. Let's conclude with a happy Purim. It should be a Purim of Adela Yada on the deepest level in the Nefesh, going to Yechida, where we come to a place that's beyond all the structures, and we can then draw down from that highest level that is higher than all levels of darkness and light and transform every aspect of light and darkness. And that can be done through Purim. And does not need to be done through alcohol or other substances. It can be done through Purim. We have to figure out how to do it with a, in, in the proper way. Many of us maybe not, don't know how, as I said, Reiku, Mikemhu. We have to know how to channel Purim. That's the challenge. How to take Purim, the Simcha of Purim, the Mishtev, the Suda of Purim, Shleach Mones and Matanus Lavienim, the Achdus, Mikra Megillah, and everything that comes with Purim, connecting to each other, which ultimately is one of the most powerful elements in healing. Nikolai Yehudim, gathering together the synergy that we all help each other reach the greatest places and everyone should only experience health and simcha, v'teva nirva nigla in the healthiest way and that automatically the powerful light should dispel every form of darkness. This has been My Life Chassidus Applied, special Purim edition. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Everyone have a very freilich and happy Purim. This program is brought to you by My Life. Hasidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at hasidusapplied.com slash donate.